The first reading comes from John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At, that, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now I'm reading from Hosea, and you'll notice it's um, cherry-picking some of the major themes right from the first chapter to the last chapter, starting chapter 1. The word of the Lord then came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Azar, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through, his, through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I'll soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave a birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Rohamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Then the Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a home and a lithtech of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I'll behave the same way toward you. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. 
but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with the cords of human kindness, with the ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to, the, to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over to Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me, or my compassion is aroused. I'll not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For, you, in, for in you the fatherless find compassion. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let me pray. Father, um, give us the power to grasp how high and wide and deep and high is the love of Christ. Fill us, Jesus, with a love that is new and deep. We pray this in your name. Amen. So it's good to be back. I'm hoping I'm not a little rusty. Got a little story for you. It is a bit of an, um, oh, that's a cute story. I don't mean it to, I don't, you know, I don't like the aw stories, but I'm going to give you an aw story. I'll give you the cue when to say aw, and um, I don't like them because they're like a bit, you know, a bit weird. My three-year-old daughter, uh, you know, was a trooper on the trip, um, our three-year-old daughter, 17,000 kilometers, strapped to a chair, that can't be good, but she sort of sang her way across America to my playlist. Um, but she was a little clingy, I don't mind saying. Um, Laurel thinks that she didn't have sort of a home base for eight weeks, and so she sort of parked herself on us, uh, you know, a sort of uh, constant uh, when there were so many things sort of moving around her. So we became her home, and so she'd regularly climb up onto our lap or my lap, and she'd say, uh, uh, she'd say, Dada, can I hear your heartbeat? And I say, sure. And then she'd press her little ear against my chest. Daddy, I can hear your heartbeat. It's all there. It's all there for you. Lap it up. We're beginning a series on the Minor Prophets, 12 books from the Old Testament. Why? Because when you read the prophets, you hear God's heartbeat. When you read the prophets, you put your little ear up to his chest and you can hear it. You see things, new things. You see things from God's perspective, which is brilliant because I'm sort of done with my own internal perspective. You hear his heart for his people. You hear his heart for justice and his hatred of injustice. You hear his heart of relentless love and his heart for resurrection it's like you can take a look inside the 
heart of God and sort of walk around for a little while. For the prophets are full of God saying, thus saith the Lord God, and the next thing comes right from the rumbling heart of God. You can hear his heartbeat in a way that is only superseded by the life of Jesus Christ. And I don't think you can read the prophets without being changed. You might even be saved. The so-called minor prophets are called minor prophets, not because they're less significant than Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, the major prophets. They're called minor because they're shorter. They were very practical people when they named this. But no less significant. They spoke to Israel in her darkest moments, and so they're confronting and that's good, by the way. Um, I don't know if you, when Holmes Courts are reading it, that out to you, you're sort of confronted by it. Um, but that's good because, you know, if I'm not rubbing up against God's words, I'm rubbing up against my own thoughts, which, you know, are designed to comfort. So if they bother you, that's good. The minor prophets bother you. They, they're meant to bother you. They were certainly there to bother Israel. But like most dark moments of history, we end up being able to force the truth, uh, face the truth about ourselves. The New Testament is clear. If we want to share in the story of God's salvation, we must know that we share in Israel's sins. So the prophets help us to experience God as he is, not simply the way you'd like him to be. That's important. The idea of the series is simple. It was, by the way, requested by Jenny Fendler at a staff meeting. So here we are. Yes, Jenny. One prophet a week for 12 weeks. We learn one idea from each prophet that points to one Savior, Jesus Christ, that we may experience the one true God, creator and redeemer of us all. So I'm doing Hosea today, and I'm going to speak in defense of God's powerful and gritty choice to keep loving. And it's a strange book. It's a strange book. It's probably the strangest of the prophets. So if you're like, that's strange. Well, you know, next week will be slightly less strange. But I want to ask tonight the question, what does God's love look like and feel like from his point of view? That's a daring question. What is God's experience of his own love? In the old prayer book, we say that God's property is always to have mercy. It's in his nature to be merciful. But what's that look and feel like in his property, in his nature? I believe that Hosea was written to help us to imagine, or rather perhaps reimagine, the love of God, because Hosea dismantles any cheap grasp of the love of God, any two-dimensional or colorless view you have of the love of God. The way people talk about the love of God is that his love is anemic. You know, its purpose is for you to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. We want to find out just not only how wide and long is the love of Christ, but how high and deep it is as well. Hosea shows us that God's experience of his love is struggle or wrestle, that it's in fact a wrestle for God to love his own. But it's a struggle, a wrestle he's prepared to take on. In particular, his love is like the love of a husband. 
So the metaphor being used for God is that of lover. A lover committed to loving his very, very unfaithful spouse. That's in chapters one of three. I got told when I was 17 years old um, by assistant minister of my church at the time that Hosea is fascinating because it's about a guy who was told to marry a prostitute and I'm thinking, I'm gonna read that. So I went home and read it and uh, I discovered that the lover imagery is over by chapter three. And then it moves to other images and namely the fatherhood or the parenthood of God. You're gonna see that in chapter 11. So his love is also like a parent committed to loving his prodigal child, his wayward son. He must then, therefore, have a deep, deep love that overcomes obstacles. He has a love with gloves on. He's prepared to fight for you. He has a love with sort of um, dirty hands. You know, he's willing to get his hands dirty. He's prepared uh, to send his son to the cross. We'll come back to that. So let me show you the prophet. Let me introduce you to a story. <laughs> the prophet Hosea. Chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beery. Interesting name, Beery. So I'm glad my dad wasn't Beery. That word came to Hosea during the reigns of four kings in the north. We'll talk about north and south separation in weeks to come. And one, four kings in the south, excuse me, and one in the north. That dates Hosea around the 8th century BC. What then does his love look like? I want to talk about that from verses one, chapters 1 to 3. And what does his love feel like from chapter 11? So what does his love look like? Well, God demonstrates his love in, in the story of Hosea. He takes Hosea. There's no record to say that he was sort of a teenage prophet. He's just a regular guy in, in, uh, in Israel presumably single, and he gives him a task as a prophet. The word of the Lord came to him and said to him, now most of the time they said, um, go and tell Israel this. Sometimes they do strange things, but a lot of the time it's go and tell Israel this. But this time God says to Hosea, go, verse two, go and marry a promiscuous woman. Now, some of you, your alarm bells are up and you're like, here's another narrative where the woman is wayward and wanted and there's the man who, you know. It's worth just owning that thought that you had. Here's another story like that. And just saying to yourself, it's 2,800 years old. But it has a better narrative. It has a good narrative here. The woman is described later as having the spirit of prostitution. So it's basically, Hosea, go take a prostitute for a wife. And if you're thinking, are you serious? Then presumably you're thinking exactly what Hosea thought when God told it to him. If Hosea was a young man here in Churchill and he said to me, God spoke to me last night and said, marry a prostitute, then I'd be around to his place that evening to have what we call a pastoral chat. <laughs> Why does God do this? And the answer is he's the great communicator, strange, but great. He's gonna tell a story that will echo 2,800 years later. He's gonna communicate with Israel exactly what God is like and exactly what they're like. And what is God like? They're like, he's like a lover. Now that itself is a surprise to some 
you know, if you just wanted to say God is a force for good in the world, usually meaning my version of good, then it would surprise you to say that God chooses as a metaphor for himself, lover. But he's like a particular lover, a particular husband. He's like a husband loving his unfaithful wife. Now we say here at marriages all the time, marriage is a symbol of God's unending love and we're at weddings and so we say, oh, that's nice. Let's put some shape on that, unending love. Here is this real life illustration of God, Hosea, to Israel, his wife. So verse three, Hosea marries a woman called Goma. Goma's a woman, by the way, for all you oldies who are thinking of Goma Pyle. No. Goma's a woman, and he marries this woman. But it doesn't stop there. The fruit of this relationship, or rather the fruit of Israel's behavior, then gets prophesied about in the names of the three children that this couple have. So verse 3, Goma has a son, and God said, call him Jezreel. And you said, that's a nice name. We'll call him Jez. In Australia, we'll call him Jezza. Now, Jezreel is the name of the site of a massacre. And God's saying, I'm going to hold you to account for that injustice. It'd be like calling your son Auschwitz. Verse 6, Gomer conceives again. They have a daughter, Lo-Rahamah, which in Hebrew means not Lo-Rahamah, not loved. So the nickname might be disliked. Verse 8, she has a, another child, a son, Lo-Ami, which means in Hebrew, not my people. You might say dis, disowned. You can see why Hosea would avoid dinner parties. You know, I'm Hosea, this is my wife Goma. And these are my children, Auschwitz, disliked and disowned. You see. Now, I mean, it's confronting. Now, why is God saying this? Saying, Israel, you're like, you're unfaithful to me. You keep running off after other gods. And the fruit of that unfaithfulness is my judgment. You know, I want to send you away from me. You know, I want to say to you, you're not loved. You're not, you're not mine. I'm not yours. Now, there's a, a note of hope Right there in verse 7, I'll show love to Judah in the south and I'll save them, but I won't do it by the normal means of power and and politics. I'm going to save you another way, which yearns you forward to a salvation that comes not by the sword, but by the cross. But on the whole, chapter 1 is dark. It's just worth owning that. In chapter 4, not printed here, God says to, to Israel, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites after Hosea has revealed that the problem is not Goma, they're the problem. And then God, through Hosea, says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no fidelity, no faithfulness. There's no love. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. Instead, as a result of that, there's only cursing and lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and... Bloodshed follows bloodshed literally in the Hebrew. Bloods touch bloods. And when I read this when I was 17, I'm like, wow, that's a dark picture of the world. Now, certainly it's Israel then in a dark period of time. But the older I get, the more I feel like I'm losing illusions about genuine horrors in the human heart and in the world. How do you live in such a world? How do you think about such a world? 
Well, God sends the prophets. Cheeky Presbyterian author shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. I think that's right. He speaks about the value of the prophets this way. He says, the prophets' quarrel with the world is deep down a lover's quarrel. If they didn't love the world, they probably wouldn't bother to tell it it was going to hell. They'd probably just let it go. Their quarrel is God's quarrel. In other words, the prophets come to Israel and, you know, there's no, you know what they say? There's no evidence to suggest that anybody had a prophet round for dinner more than once. Always awkward, always difficult, always confronting. Now, we could point the finger at Israel and say that they were guilty, but we're not. And that whole narrative in Australia of, you know what, we're okay, it's so important to us that we'll do anything to protect it. We could then pick up stones to stone Israel. Yeah, you could do it on social media, really. Just throw stones at somebody. You could do it in seconds. But I'll be nervous about picking up stones to stone anyone. Here in Australia, God has not made a covenant with us like the way he did with Israel, but he's given us so much, you think we'll be the first to love God. In chapter 6, God says to Israel, and I feel it myself, your love is like the morning cloud. We prayed it a moment ago, like a dew that goes early away. No, corporately, we are Goma. You don't get to throw a stone at her. Corporately, by the way, not individually. I gave these talks to high school kids many years ago, and a kid went home, and his mum said, what would you learn? And the kid said, I learned that I was a prostitute. When that news got back to me, I'm like, backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. It's time to communicate better. <laughs> Not individually. Corporately, we find ourselves in Israel or in Goma. That's hard to come to terms with, but we share Israel's sin. So does God still love his people? That's the question. Well, God says to Hosea, return to your wife in chapter 3. After this agony of chapter 2, which is like, um, I need to divorce you, but I'm not going to. I'm going to woo you into the desert and speak tenderly to you and betroth you to me forever. And when I do, the skies will light up with joy. Go read it. It's all yours. It's a gift, chapter 2, to you tonight. In chapter 3, God says to Hosea, let's go back to the mirroring thing again. The Lord said to me, chapter 3, verse 1, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. Go show your love to her even though she's caught in this slavery. Love her in just the same way that the Lord loves the Israelites. See the communication going on there? Though they turned to other gods and loved the sacred raisin cakes. I don't know what the sacred raisin cakes are. Perhaps we have them on supper after church today. They sound quite tasty. A commentary will give you 10 pages on what those cakes are, but they'll have to do with idol worship. But do you see what's going on here? While still a prostitute, Hosea is told to move towards her, show love. Whilst it, listen to Romans 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He tells Hosea to redeem his wife with a price at cost. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Again, commentaries will tell you. But the point is, I went and ransomed her at cost to the one who was wronged, deeply wronged. 
Listen to 1 Peter 1 verse 18. You, speaking to believers in Christ, you were redeemed not with silver or gold or a homer and a lethic of barley, but rather you were redeemed with what? You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Hosea then tells Israel that this love must shape her. Verse 3, then I taught you to live with me many days. You are to be mine. You are to live with me for many days. You must not be prostitute or intimate with any man and I'll behave towards you in the same way and the healing will begin. In John chapter 8, a woman is dragged to the feet of Jesus by leaders wanting to trap Jesus. She is an adulterer, but she's also a pawn in the game of powerful men trying to kill Jesus. The leaders throw this woman down at the feet of Jesus and say to him, according to the law of Moses, she deserves to be killed by us throwing rocks at her. It's terribly bloody. But they say to Jesus, what say you? Now, what, what should Jesus do then? What should he do to show the heart of God? Because Jesus is the fullest expression of God. You want to hear his heartbeat? Look at the life of Jesus. What should he do in that moment? If he says something like, don't worry about it. You know, we all make our choices. Um, it doesn't matter. Then he breaks the law of Moses. But if he says, okay, Moses does promote that form of justice, go ahead and stone her, then the woman dies, doesn't experience compassion. He's got a choice in that moment to either demonstrate hard justice or a laxity with the laws of Moses, with what is right. So he's caught, and the, I imagine those who are holding the rocks in their hand know that he's caught, but he just quietly and commandingly bends down and starts drawing in the dust of the, of the, of the dirt around him in the, in the streets of Jerusalem. And he quietly says, you can imagine the crowd going, oh, quiet. He quietly says, if you don't think that you've sinned, then go ahead and throw that stone. Go ahead and throw it. It's almost like, I dare you, throw the stone. Something like that. One by one, we're told, uh, they drop their stones. The oldest first, what do you know? Age and wisdom. <laughs> Until there's silence, shuffling feet and silence. And Jesus straightens up and looks at the woman and says, is there no one here left to condemn you? And she says, it's beautiful. No, sir, no one. Her life has been saved. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. And right there, you've got something powerful, by the way. The one person who could throw a stone doesn't. By the way, you could become a Christian on that insight alone. The one person, here is God, right, the expression of God, the word made flesh. He, he could do it. He would have the right to. But he puts the stone. He doesn't, have, he doesn't, he doesn't even pick up a stone. <laughs> he asks people to put down their stone. He shows her what Christians call grace. And then he says, go and sin no more. Hosea 3, verse 3, you must remain as mine. So what does God love looks like? It looks like a husband loving his 
unfaithful spouse. But it's a love that fights for the relationship, the covenant relationship, and it leads straight to the redemption of the world by Christ's death on the cross. I will show my love, I will save you, and it won't be by the bow or the sword or the battle, by horses or horsemen, but I will save them. God's love looks like a grace-filled, tough-minded, gritty, redeeming, and life-giving love. God's love looks like Christ on the cross. Now, sidebar. Hosea, the book of Hosea, is about God's love for his people Israel. It's not about our marriages. Not primarily. It's worth saying that Hosea is not a reason for a woman or a man to stay in an abusive relationship or even an unfaithful one, necessarily. In fact, you could make a case from chapter 2 that infidelity as such is grounds. Jesus makes that case in Luke chapter 19. There's other reasons why I think that Hosea is not a reason to stay in an abusive marriage. And you can see on our zine the zero tolerance policy we have for for accepting um, domestic violence or an abusive relationship in the back of your zines. Another reason I think is, is that we're talking about God here and God's love for his people and God has a power that a lot of people who are rendered powerless don't have, namely that he can say, oh, I love my faithless spouse, but I will do the one thing necessary to redeem the entire situation. A lot of people caught in domestic violence situations have no such power. I'm not saying what they should do. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that you can't look at Hosea and think that this is a blank check for every person who's caught in an unfaithful relationship or certainly an abusive one to stay in that relationship. But it may be a reason to fight for a difficult one, not an abusive one, a difficult one. And some of us have difficult marriages. But if you fight to keep the covenant that you have made in a safe space with wisdom in community, if you struggle and wrestle to love your spouse, you may just hear the heartbeat of God. Grace, grit, determination, love. Talk to me, talk to Jenny Fendler, talk to, um, there's people to talk to about that. But I just wanted to make that sidebar. Is that all right? Happy to have for me to do that? Raises lots of questions, but I just want to make that simple point. Secondly, and quickly, what does God's love feel like? There's another significant image in Hosea, that of God as Father. And you're about to catch a glimpse, a brief glimpse into the heart and soul of God. Chapter 11 is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible, has been for about 25 years. I know it off by heart. Chapter 11 is the key to the whole book of Hosea. And verse 8, chapter 8, sorry, chapter 11, verse 8c is the most important part of that chapter. This is what it feels like. It feels like a father to a wayward son. Chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. I rescued him, my son, from Egypt. You get the metaphor? What a great reason to God to love God back. But he's a son, verse 2, that ran away to other gods. The more I called them, the further they ran from me. They ran to a far country to love other things other than God. Well, how does he feel? Well, God reminisces in verses 3 to 4 about Israel being a child that I taught to walk. These are images we can all understand, taking them by the arms. I've taken 
four children by the arms and, you know, seen them take their first wobbly steps and then whisk them up in your arms, you know, because they can only take two and not five steps. Well, God is like that to his son Israel. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness. I led them with a leash out of Egypt, but it was a leash of love, ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. What an image that we can all grasp, taking a little girl and teaching her to walk or a boy in your arms and putting your cheeks up to his cheeks. That's God to Israel. So what does he feel towards his wayward son? It feels like agony, you know. If they determine to turn from me, then I will by no means exalt them. You see the agony there. But then he says in verse 8, the most important verse here, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I do that? How can I treat you like Admar or make you like Zeboam? And then he says, I'm going to deal with my anger and my frustration at your sin, but I'll deal with it not by taking it out on you. I'll deal with it by taking it out within me, in my own heart. Verse 8c. Look at it, look at it. My heart is changed within me and all my compassion is aroused. Underline that verb to change. My heart is changed within me or my compassion is aroused. That verb is a difficult one to translate in the Hebrew, I'm told. In the ESV it says, my heart recoils within me. Or in the King James Version, my heart is turned within me. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, I can't even bear to think such thoughts. My insides churn in protest. The word translated to change is the word to overthrow a city, to upturn it, to sack it, to raise it. It's the same word used when a city gets sacked. The image being evoked here is that there's a war zone inside God's heart. I want to send you away and I want to keep you. But the war zone inside the heart of God is God sacking his own heart. It's his own heart being overthrown, which leads to all my compassion being aroused. And in verse 9, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate a frame again. In fact, I will shower my gifts upon you and find you home again. This beautiful chapter 11 of, of the father agonizing over a son who's walked. And some of you know exactly what this feels like. And if you do, in some sense, you put up your little ear to the chest of God and you can hear his heartbeat. Of course, uh, Assyria did walk out over the north and Babylon over the south. So the whole of the prophets beg a narrative forward. What is happening on the cross of Jesus Christ is not the cross of Jesus Christ, God carrying out his burning anger within his own heart, is not the cross of Jesus Christ, God laying waste his own heart, sacking it, is not the cross of Jesus Christ, God's heartbeat towards his wayward people. It's God's heart recoiling at sin, churning it up within and dealing with it so that he no longer has anger towards his people but loves them freely and brings them home. What does Romans 8 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For we who found ourselves in Goma, for we who found ourselves in Israel, we discover there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you respond? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Time to be honest in your heart before God, to put your ear on his chest 
And then make a searching and fearless moral inventory of your own life, just like the alcoholics do. And then express your need for repentance to this God and no other God. From Oscar Wilde, how else but through a broken heart may the Lord Christ enter in? You may be surprised to know that sin is not ultimately fatal. Jesus and his death on the cross speak to you and they say, guess what? Sin is not ultimately fatal. I'll tell you what it is. Denial is fatal. Or to minimize sin or to assume it belongs to other people like politicians and the like. What does Hosea say in chapter 14? Hosea says, return to the Lord your God. Say something like or recognize that your sins have been your downfall and take something with you. Not your goodness, not your achievements, not your money, not your wealth. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say something to him. I'll give you some words to say. Say something like, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips and worship you again. It'd be to say something like, no one else can save us. I can't save me. Assyria can't save me. I'll never again say our gods to what my own hands have made. Right. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. So let's do that now. <laughs> let's pray. As Veronica comes forward um, to continue our prayers. Let me start with a benediction from Brennan Manning, who wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And um, it's a beautiful uh, and surprising benediction, really. And then I'm going to pray the prayers of, of Hosea. Brennan Manning. May all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness that you may experience the powerlessness of a child and can only sing and dance in the love of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we come before you with so much in our lives, so many things going on, so many achievements we've done, so, so many good things that we've uh, done in our lives, but we recognize ourselves in Israel. We place ourselves there in that narrative. And so we come before you, the one true and only God, and we say, forgive us our sins and receive us graciously. Forgive me freely that tonight I might offer the fruit of my lips in praise. We ask you for this, Father, in Christ's sake. Amen.